Hallelujah. He is alive. Jesus, we thank you that you have risen from the dead. We thank you, Father, that you have ordained from before time began the perfect plan that was executed in time. Jesus Christ satisfying the payment for our sins upon Calvary. All the miracles of prophecy and its fulfillment and satisfaction in the once-for-all atoning perfect Paschal Lamb sacrifice coming together at the fullness of the exact moment of your sovereign intervention and your divine predestination. We thank you, Lord, that furthermore, from that point, the church has been gathered in to the thr- as a threshing floor, has met the sickle of the gospel, such that a number beyond counting will eventually be collected into the storehouse houses of glory, praising the name so worthy of praise with a number, a multitude that can't be numbered with a voice that sounds like many waters, all because you are worthy. You are worthy, Lord. You are worthy of our praise, worthy of our thoughts, our meditations. You are worthy of our ambitions and our goals. You are worthy of us laying our lives down as a living sacrifice in light of the glorious reality of the gospel and its blessings that attend your own. I pray today as we open up your scriptures that you would show us more of the glories that are connected to our hope in Jesus Christ and recognize the beauty of this plan and the revelation that spans the generations. And I pray, Lord, that we would, as a result of hearing your word today, be more moved to consistently apply, proclaim, and live in light of the truth of your holy word. We thank you, Lord, that your word has the power also to redeem and save the lost. When the Spirit uses the proclamation of the gospel to open the eyes of the once dead sinner, he realizes that he is lost and in need of a Savior, condemned in his sin, and hell-worthy. Yet in the gospel there is hope for salvation by the one who died for him. We pray as your word goes forth that you would call the lost to salvation as well, and you would show yourself glorious in reaping one more and one more, Lord, until the fullness of the elect comes in to the praise of your great name. Thank you for these moments we have to share together. And again, we pray that you would be glorified in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. What a gracious gift and opportunity it is to worship our Lord together. Truly, He is worthy of our praise. And let us praise the Lord by dedicating our attention to His revelation, His Holy Scriptures, by turning to Psalm 113. As you're turning there, I'll give you a title, a brief aim, and then we'll stand once again for the reading of God's Word. The title of this morning's message is God and Man. Our expanded a bit, the relationship between the two. That's a major theme in this psalm, which is just nine verses, but there's quite a bit of truth packed in, as is the pattern in all of this altar, in fact. So what is the relationship between God and man, or what are some of the distinctives that help us to understand the differences and the means of reconciliation? We're a sinner who is worthy of death, and a holy God who is beyond our comprehension in His beauty, power, and glory might be in fellowship and communion one with another. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to reveal glories of God and sinner, the glories of God and sinner reconciled, to reveal glories of God and sinner reconciled. So God is glorified in the reconciliation of himself and sinners. And so I hope this message today proclaims as much faithfully as the Spirit gives the ability from his word in Psalm 113. Would you stand once again out of reverence for God's scripture today and let us behold his holy word. Listen as his scripture is proclaimed in your hearing this day. Here is the holy word of God. Psalm 113 verse 1 and following. 
Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? Verse 7, He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. Verse 9, He gives the barren woman a house, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. So let me give you just a little bit of historical background related to this psalm and a set of psalms, 6 in fact, 113 through 118, that will provide a little bit of overview, introduction, and context for us and to help with our perspective, hopefully, and understanding of, of this and the psalms that follow. Psalm 113 introduces another set of songs in the Psalter, which traditionally accompanied Jewish liturgy at festival, a few in particular. The festival of Passover, festival of New Moon, festival of Weeks, these are festivals or feasts, tabernacles, dedication of the temple. So the people of God through the ages have seen Psalms 113 through 118 as fitting psalms to accompany the liturgy or accompany the worship of these occasions that God had set forth in His Word. Passover, New Moon, Weeks, Tabernacles, Dedication of the Temple. These six songs are referred to as the Hallel. In Hebrew, that means praise. Or sometimes the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. So this category of psalm recognizes that their themes are fitting to commemorate the works of God promised and executed in the deliverance out of Egypt, in that Exodus deliverance under his servant Moses. Hence, the title for this set of psalms, the Egyptian Hallel Songs. As such, a song from this section, if not all six, were likely sung by Jesus, by our Lord himself and his apostles at the Last Supper. Why might we conclude this? Well, the Last Supper, the occasion was the Passover, and it says in Matthew 26, 30, and also in Mark 14, 26, that they sang a song. And so, if not all six, likely this song, or one of these, was sung by our Lord Himself and His apostles at this occasion. So let us likewise realize the timeless value of these songs of Hallel, or praise, given our own salvation experience. So if these songs were fitting themes for the deliverance of people out of Egypt, then they certainly contain fitting themes for the deliverance of His people today out of sin, which Egypt pictured. Our Lord and Savior is exalted in these very words, and He likely led His first disciples in a worship service singing Psalm 113 in anticipation of his Calvary work of deliverance as the true Passover lamb, soon to be led to the slaughter for our sins, thereby would secure our communion with him. Isn't that a glorious thought? Imagine a worship service led by Jesus himself singing this particular song to anticipate its very fulfillment in days, in moments as he goes to the cross. This is the background and use of this song, likely as we see it through history and in the Word of God. 
Therefore, as we consider these things, let us sing Psalm 113 and recognize or meditate on it at least today and recognize as we do so that we join perhaps Jesus Christ himself and certainly the early church and his first apostles in song. Praise the Lord. We are returning to liturgy of the church that is an order of worship, a song of praise that is truly ancient yet eternally relevant. Psalm 113. Let me give you a heading and three uh, sections that we'll consider Psalm 113 in today. Here's the heading. Psalm 113 presents three situations describing the relationship between God and His people. Three situations that describe the relationship between God and His people. Situation one, our due posture relative to God. How ought we to live, react, act, praise relative to who God is? That would be situation one, our due posture relative to God. Situation two, God's position relative to us. There's a perspective points that help to clarify the, who, the nature of God and the nature of man using positional language. And verses four through six, they really emphasize this, God's position relative to us. And then final situation describing the relationship between God and his people, consequences of covenant between the two. That is to say, the consequences of covenant between God and man. What does the covenant relationship, the reconciliation between God who is so high and man who is so low in his sin, what are the benefits of that relationship? Verses 7 through 9 expound the answer to that question. So let us consider the first three verses under this first major point, our due posture relative to God. This is a situation describing the relationship between God and His people. Who God is demands a response from His own. Verses 1 through 3. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So our posture relative to who God is ought to be one of praise, ascribing to Him glory, one of adoration. This brings up a paradox that is at least implicit in the text. And I want to point this out because both our sin nature and our modern culture would find this to be contradictory, but it is not. What is a paradox? So it's something that appears at first glance to be unrelated, but in closer examination, there's a surprising relationship. So here's the surprising relationship in verses 1 through 3. Adoration and submission. Listen, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. So what is the relationship that we have with the Lord? He is our master. We are His servants. This is a relationship of submission. This is a relationship of God recognized as the higher authority. Our Lord, our sovereign, our King. Yet today, it is not common to think of one in power over us as one whom we adore, one whom we love. And why is this? Well, it's because of the radical, if you will, egalitarianism that's so popular in our culture. What is egalitarianism? Well, everybody is super important and a god unto themselves, independent of anything else. You know, we see this in the so-called women's rights movement. Uh, women want to be 
celebrated and identified as having as much importance and significance and everything else as any man, and they feel that any dependency, perhaps, on the relationship between man and woman that would affect or relate to their importance and dignity and so forth, or even function in society, would diminish them in some way. Hence, the secular women's movement embraces a radical egalitarianism. There is no meaningful connection between human beings and relationship that provides a synergistic, you know, or like a combination that would uh, make the two better as a result of the relationship. Well, and man is the same way with respect to God. We live in rebellion against the sovereign over us. We prefer to be our own God. We have bought, hook, line, and sinker in many cases, the first lie in the garden. You can be as God. This is radical individualism, radical egalitarianism, or autonomy, seeking to be a law unto oneself. That is to find dignity, identity, and freedom solely in who you are. Are we not obsessed in this culture with dignity, identity, and freedom? But we look for it only in one source, in me. I am important. I, can, I ought to be free. And my identity is in me and who I choose myself to be and who I am. So you better accept me on those terms. And I'm not going to submit my claim to dignity, identity, and freedom to anyone least of all my creator. That's the heart of rebellion so common in a radical egalitarian culture. Psalm 113 commands us to repent of this posture. It commands us to recognize the due posture relative to God. He is our sovereign. We are his servant. But this is a glorious relationship, not one we should reject, We should consider that we're less important as a result of it, or we're oppressed or a victim because of it. No, this is a relationship of adoration and submission. The two go together. We are servants. We are slaves of Jesus Christ, who praise and adore our Master because He has died for us. He has stooped low to pay for our sins. This concept is lost on us often in the modern age due to these influences I mentioned before. Nevertheless, Psalm 113 provides a corrective. Adore and submit to your Lord. He is awesome, He is powerful, and He is your God. And you should be happy about this and rejoice and praise Him all the while. That is to say, adoration and submission are not mutually exclusive. And this actually shapes the worldview of Christianity all the way down. You see, there's tension in marriage, understanding the relationship between submission between a husband and wife and so forth, Ephesians 5. Between parents and and children, Ephesians 6. Between the church and its very graces and its order and structure in Ephesians and other verses. We are all combined parts, as it were, connected to the head. You see, these relationships within the ordinary uh, Christian life are defined by adoration and submission to the Lord, and then to some degree that pattern is reflected in the rest. So is it any wonder, in an age where we reject an adoration of a power or authority over us, that we also have the understanding of marriage falling apart, or the understanding of biblical discipline and submission of parents to children falling apart, one example. So this is a dramatic one, But it's very important because it's featured on the most prominent stage in our culture in some measures, and that would be in Congress itself. So recently, I don't know if you saw this clip, but uh, Senator Rand Paul was interviewing the uh, appointed, if I understand it correctly, Assistant Secretary of Health, 
who identifies as a transgender woman, I think that's correct, biologically a man identifying as a woman and dressing as a woman and so on and so forth. And the point of Ron Paul's questioning is to say, do you in fact stand by your prior statements that an eight-year-old independent of his parents should be able to choose his gender and that a doctor would prescribe a life and physiologically permanently altering hormones to quote unquote change their gender independent of their parents' wishes? Why would something like this even be featured? Why is this radical perversion or upending of the created order featured on, on the most prominent stage in our culture? Why? Because we are radically disobedient to Psalm 113, 1 through 3. And we have become upside down and wholly given over in many cases to our sin. And we are an example. We are an object lesson. We are an illustration of Romans chapter 1 as a result. Worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Give ourselves up to a perversion and redefinition of all of God's basic order that he has prescribed. So what is the cure? Return to the scriptures. Praise the Lord. Adore and submit to your creator who has ordained a law whereby society and yourself are to be rightly ordered, who has ordained a way of salvation so that transgender individual might repent and return to the Lord, acknowledging His authority over that and acknowledging that in Him is healing of our sin and even the worst offenses against it. Unless we point too many fingers outward, let us point them in. Ourselves and our sin and our radical rebellion to any degree that we have not adored and submitted to the Lord, there is freedom in Him as well. And so we return to the Scriptures and we heed the command, Praise the Lord, O servants of the Lord. Self-identify as a servant and a slave of Jesus Christ. Who are you? Self-identify as a slave of Jesus Christ. Why don't you put that as your, uh, whatever you guys do on Facebook and whatnot. That would be a, a way to start a conversation that would shift from this radical rebellion back to a biblical category. Our posture relative to God. The Lord deserves limitless praise. Verse 2. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. He is deserving of limitless praise. What does this phrase, the name of the Lord, refer to and what does it mean? Well, a few things. I'm often saying this in reference to God's glory, but it can be a, also applied to His name. His worth, His works, and His attributes. Those are all tied up in this concept of the name of the Lord. When you see the name of the Lord, think of His worth, how valuable He is. Think of His works, that which He has accomplished and will accomplish, and decree that He would accomplish and fulfilled in time prophetically. Think of His attributes, that which sets Him apart as holy and beautiful and powerful and glorious and merciful and just, etc. These are the things that are the name of the Lord. Well, God, who is, whose glory surpasses time, that is, uh, let me rephrase it. The God whose glory surpasses time ought to be praised forevermore. The God whose glory surpasses time ought to be praised forevermore. So last week I listened to Dave's sermon. I was greatly encouraged. And one thing that really struck me, and I hope you caught it if you were here last week, is that Dave used the analogy of a picture on the wall of two parents and a, a child looking up at it and kind of having an awakening. Where am I in the picture, the child might ask. And Dave rightly pointed out that we often think of God only in categories of his relationship with us. And what is lost in that often is that God in his glory, in his worth, his works, and his attributes surpasses us, our experience, and even time itself. 
before Jesus stepped, according to Philippians 2, Dave's text last week, into human form to take on the form of a servant to die in our place. He was eternally exalted and radiant in all the resplendence as the second person of the Trinity forever in heaven. And I can't explain that in my small, you know, pea-sized by comparison, finite brain, but it is nevertheless true. And for this reason, and infinitely more, our God is worthy of limitless praise. And that is what verse 2 tells us, the name of the Lord. Now, it's perhaps easier for us to understand this concept of name, because we are obsessed with names, even in our culture. Now, perhaps the most recent and obvious example would be President Donald Trump. You know, somebody raised this question recently in a podcast, so of human beings alive today, who do you think is the most famous human being alive today? And they were arguing that Donald Trump would likely fill that. And I, I don't, really don't have any objection to that. I think that is probably true. So Trump, whose name it has, you know, by his own uh, intentions, was promoted to advertise himself as a brand, kind of through his whole career and course of cultural significance and influence. He is kind of indistinguishable between a person and product, and he was, you know, constantly kind of, moving forward his brand accordingly. So he had a lot invested in his name, if you will. And for better or for worse, once he assumed the presidency, he became the center of culture, cultural attention. Love him or hate him, for a while there, Trump was the center, if not now even, of cultural attention. And so this illustrates this idea of name. It refers to, again, someone's character, ambitions, reputation, their renown, rightly or wrongly, and so forth. And so in the case of someone like Donald Trump, his name became very famous for this period of time. But that window is limited, and his name is likely fading in the consciousness of American culture, even now, to some degree. And no matter how influential and famous an individual is, we might mark them you know, in our history books, so on and so forth, but there is no one who will enjoy limitless and eternal renown, that is, worthiness of being recognized eternally. And there is no one who will be recognized with a limitless, you know, as far as a mere human being is concerned, praise, except for one. And this is our Lord. And here's the application. If you in your own heart or you see in culture a temptation to elevate another name, like a political figure, culturally important individual, or anybody else, to dominate your thoughts and your attention or be the center of your meditation your, or, the, or the cultures being fixated on it, you, it's pretty easy to know what to do to call for repentance. To point beyond our, for a lot of people, it's just themselves, by the way, back to my first point, that fits into this category. Repentance, according to Psalm 113, is to look beyond these individuals and look beyond oneself and to recognize that from the rising of the sun to its setting, there is what but one name that is deserving of the center of our culture's attention or an individual's meditation or the investment of their hopes and their security into the future, and that is the name of the Lord who surpasses time, surpasses history, surpasses our experience, and He will be and ought to be praised from this time forth and forevermore. So let us be growing in our call to praise the one who is deserving of limitless praise. This is the posture due our Lord. This is a situation that, or this, these first three verses, it's a situation describing, as we said, the relationship between God and his people. And when we realize how majestic and awesome God is, 
we ought to repent of replacing ourselves or anyone in place of him and recognize that he alone is deserving of limitless praise. To illustrate this one step further, there is a metaphor regarding the sun in verse 3. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. This is a metaphor or a picture of scope. So who is called to praise the Lord? Everyone whom the sun's rays touches. This executive order to praise the Lord is absolutely binding and authoritative. And the power of God's authority uh, is connected to his power to judge you if you disobey. And there's coming a day of reckoning where all who benefited from the shining of his sun will have to answer whether they acknowledge the source of that sun or not. Hence, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Another way to say it is from the east to the west. As far as you can travel, the limits of human habitation on this earth, the Lord's name is to be praised. So this executive order that Psalm 113 opens and closes with, praise the Lord, who does it apply to? Only Christians? No. Everyone, kiss the sun, even you kings, you authority, uh, you self-appointed sovereigns, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 82 the, uh, the Lord, or Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David acknowledging a greater king over him. Psalm 82, God has taken his place in the divine council and he proceeds to judge between all these other claims, so-called gods, so-called claims to authority, and so on and so forth. The course of the day and everywhere the sun touches it defines the scope and the range by which this edict, this executive order, as I'm calling it, praise the Lord, must be heeded or else. It is issued to all who have been touched by the rays of the sun, and they are indebted to him for every moment of the day. Would we be alive? How long would we live without the sun? And of course, moments, maybe less. And we recognize this, the ancients did, even through to our modern time. Who's responsible for maintaining the sun in the sky. The incredible nuclear fusion or whatever powers that incredible heat and light source has been ordained, set in place, and maintained in the providence and in the creative power of the Almighty God. Do we honor Him? We ought to. Everyone under the sun, praise Him, because you wouldn't be alive if He hadn't given you life and sustained you by these means and others in the first place. So that's situation one, describing our relationship between us, you know, and the Lord, it describes a, or it outlines a posture, or a due posture, a condition of heart, a mentality of the soul, a worldview, and a conviction of the soul relative to who God is. Second major point, God's position relative to us, verses 4 through 6. Now these verses begin to show the difference between where God is situated and where we are, using poetic language to reveal it, in verse 4, we have the following. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Let me give you paradox number two, God's position relative to us. Now, these, these two ideas are lost on the modern philosopher, but they can be found by those even with childlike faith. And this, they are these, God is both holy and personal. 
God is holy, completely set apart, in a cat, the Latin is sui generis, in a class all to himself. Sometimes see that phrase in theology and so forth. God is completely set apart in his power, in his glory, in his worth, his works, his attributes, as we said before, yet he is personal. You know, the philosophers the, uh, through the ages have struggled over this idea. If God is truly uh, glorious and other and holy, as it were, how can he be known? And many have concluded, well, indeed he can't. There are even so-called Christian philosophers who have come up with this idea to try to bridge the gap between God's holiness and our experience. They cannot and will not do it. Philosophy will not bridge the gap. The man's towers of Babel will not bridge the gap. But there is a way the gap is bridged, and that is by God himself accommodating himself to man. And this is what Dave was preaching last week as well. In the providence of God, Philippians 2 is a cross-reference you might see in your own scripture. These verses that we just read speak not only of God's position relative to us, but how God builds a bridge across that immeasurable chasm in his what's called condescension, stooping low, revealing himself to us, so on and so forth. So that's the paradox that we see here. God is transcendent. He is above. He's surpassing. He is over. And he is imminent. That means he can be personally known and experienced by his people. This is the consistent biblical teaching, too profound to be grasped by the mere intellectual, but can be experienced through those with childlike faith, even the children who welcome Jesus in the triumphal entry, saying, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The holy God who spoke them into existence and his entire world by the word of his power has accommodated himself to the needs of man's sin on a full, on a uh, colt, the foal of a donkey. Incredible picture. God's position relative to us. We understand it more deeply, don't we, when we realize he is above the nations. Do you believe that? Now we confess as much in the abstract, but do we believe that God is high above all nations. I mentioned Psalm 82 before, and a little further if I can remember it, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality, partiality to the wicked, say law? Now in that picture, I want you to, so Star Wars fans in the room, kids, are you Star Wars fans? Oh, sorry, uh, parents, if I'm if this is outlawed or whatever in your household. I know in my household there's Star Wars fans. And I have to ask my kids, you know, if I get my illustrations right, because I don't really follow it that close. But there's a scene I do remember from a Star Wars episode of, I think it's called the Galactic Senate or something like that. It's like a huge funnel shape, and there's seats, like in concentric circles, and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's just this huge, like, you know, colossal-sized, space-sized auditorium. And presumably in each one of those seats is a representative from all these other worlds, right? And so this is a picture in kind of cinematic language of an assembly of the powerful, the quote-unquote gods, the quote-unquote, you know, leaders of all the nations of the earth in our context, or the the, uh, universe of Star Wars, all these distant worlds and so forth. Well, imagine in that scene, God himself taking his place in the divine council. So amongst the whole assembly of claims to authority, God sits down. A hush falls over the crowd. You can hear a pin drop. Everyone there knows that based on what he says, they will live or die. And he opens his mouth. He's holding court. He holds judgment. And he says, why have you broken my law in this category? 
Why have you broken my law in that category? That in, in as much as you did not repent, you are goats and will be separated from me forever. And this is the picture of the sovereignty of God that is revealed in the context of all of Scripture from, the, from creation to the Psalms to the final judgment. God has taken his place in the divine council and decrees at his, per, at his place in time a day of reckoning where mankind must answer for how they stand before him, even kings and people in authority. We know this because Psalm 113.4 says the Lord is high above all nations and his glory is above the heavens. God is over nations. He is over nature. God is over the heavens themselves. Now the heavens continue to captivate the mind and the scientific endeavors of man today, right? The Hubble telescope is a fascinating look into the distant reaches of our universe so far as we know. And, you know, constantly man is seeking to spend great amounts of money and to imagine exploring space and what that might yield. Elon Musk comes to mind and his Mars mission and so on and so forth. Man has always been fascinated by that which is just beyond his grasp. And the more that we've come to understand the space above us, the more we've come to understand it's bigger than we first imagined. It's perhaps unfathomable to us. We simply don't know. There's no way we could sit down and count the stars. And the scriptures knew this. God, the author, knew this. He said as much and then declared, He is above all that we can see and whatever we can't that is pictured in the Hubble telescope and the furthest reaches of Voyager spacecraft and whatever technology we can muster in the future, he is above nations, he is above the heavens. Do you believe that? If you do, it will change the way you live. A person who truly believes that God is higher than the heavens, which are unfathomable to us in so many ways, higher than the nations, which seem to be the most powerful, formidable enemies, at least the power that's centralized in you know, the edicts and laws and so forth that are issued. A God that is above those and who is truly believed will create a fearless people who obey him above all else. And if you wonder how the world got turned upside down in the apostolic age, this is why. They were witnesses to a resurrection. At first they were discouraged because it appeared that death had defeated their king, who they thought would be triumphant. But no, in that act he proved more, more triumphant than they even anticipated. He wasn't just Lord over Rome. He was Lord over nature. He was Lord over death. And so imagine if you truly believed that and then lived and applied your life accordingly, the kind of fearless boldness it would give you to proclaim the majesty, the limitless praise worthy of the one who's defeated even the grave. God's position relative to us, he's over nations, He's over nature. Now, this is interesting. I mean, there's so many applications. I won't go into too many. But this is in direct contradiction to the prevailing worldviews of the day and the prevailing worldviews of our time. You know, and back in the day when this was written, mankind would worship things like the sun. You might think, oh, that's stupid. But we do stuff just as stupid today. In, worship, excuse me, in worshiping the sun, mankind simply, in his blindness, could not conceive of a higher first cause in the chain of life. I mean, that's, you know, if you're just looking, observing the universe, and you think, well, what's the first cause in the chain of life, the reason I exist? You kind of look to the sun, you say, yeah, that must be it. I mean, in the limits of your own understanding, merely your own understanding, that might be a rational conclusion. However, the, the scriptures hold out the truth, which is there is a God over the sun. Do not worship the sun. 
You see, that was a worldview that assumed materialism. There was nothing really above our experience in the creation of the material realm. And that worldview is still with us today. Man doesn't worship the sun, but when they ask, what's the first cause of our being? They settle on things like evolution, process, time, chance, matter, big bang, etc. It might sound a little bit more scientific, quote unquote, might sound a little bit more sophisticated. I'm here to tell you, it's just as stupid as worshiping the sun. The first cause in the chain of being is the God over time, over chance, there is no chance, over matter, the Lord of glory, the author of salvation, the creator of the universe, the one who ordained the sun as a light to rule the day, ordained the moon as a light to rule the night, and did so creating them by the word of his son's power at the very first moment when they were spoken into being. God's position relative to us, this perspective altering or this perspective shaping view comes to the fore in Psalm 113, 4 through 6. Finally, it says in verse 6, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. And now we see a shift to his condescension, which I mentioned before. What does it mean that God looks far down if he's over the heavens, he's over the nation, yet he sees your heart? So there's a judgment specificity that's indicated here. Remember, we've been going through Genesis, and this positional language is used with reference to God visiting judgment on the Tower of Babel. God comes down, as it were, positional language is significant, and does an investigative judgment. He sees that the Tower of Babel has transgressed his law, and so he brings judgment. He does the same thing in Sodom and Gomorrah with his servant Abraham at his side. He down, looks down upon Sodom. He sends his agents there, the uh, angels, and they indeed affirm the testimony of their wickedness is true. And so the judgment comes by way of fiery destruction. The Lord looks down from the heavens, as it were, over the Red Sea and collapses that watery grave upon his enemies that were chasing the Israelites, pharaohs, chariots, and horses. And so this positional language of God condescending or looking down is significant with respect to judgment. But that's not the only way that God looks down upon his creation, stoops low to intervene, is both holy and personal. He is also holy in his salvation. He stoops down as it were, he looks down, or he intervenes by way of covenant, by way of relationship. He does so through covenant, revelation, incarnation. When Jesus took on flesh, Philippians 2, 4 through 8, the form of a servant, as Dave mentioned, that humility, that stooping low, that condescension, that looking down in the interest of salvation is judged relative to prior position, as Dave was mentioning. This is the Lord of glory washing the dirty feet of a wicked sinner. Incredible. And Psalm 113 prophesies as much. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. This brings us to our final section. To make them sit with princes and the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Final point this morning, summarizing those verses I just read. Consequences of covenant between a holy God and us. Consequences of the covenant between us and God. So remember, three situations describing our relationship between us and the Lord. Number one, our due posture, we should praise Him relative to God. God's position relative to us, He's high, He's above, He's unimaginably glorious, over-transcending. And number three, the consequences of the relationship between the two. What happens when a holy God stoops low in salvation to rescue a wretched sinner like you and I.
It is amazing. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Of course, one cannot help but think of Job, the book that precedes this. How does it close? Job 42, final chapter. After God reveals himself, stoops low in even speaking, revealing himself to Job in a way that he can tangibly hear and recognize, Job responds as follows, verse 5. I heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. You see, these are the consequences of the covenant relationship, the connection between a holy God and Job, whose perspective is being changed, his eyes are being opened, his ears are now tuned to the truth. And what does he say in verse 6? Therefore I despise myself and repent in what? Dust and ashes. I am worthy to be condemned to dust and ashes, yet I have seen the Holy One. I understand myself, my weakness, my frailty, my dependence, my sin, and light of His glory. So I repent. But what does God do? Does He leave His servant groveling in the dust? Does He leave him covered in ash? Does He leave him in festering boils? It's a picture of our own sin, saints. He does not. Verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. This is a picture of our salvation. When He had prayed for His friends and the Lord gave Job twice as much as He had before, to what degree, verse 12 chronicles, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, it's a lot, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, and it goes on to talk about his family, seven sons, three daughters, their names, their lineage, his posterity, so on and so forth. So you see that Job himself is an illustration of Psalm 113, and it's a picture of redemption. The Lord who is so high above heavens and nature, when He looks far down on the heavens and the earth, He raises the poor and the needy from the dust and from the ash heap. Are you poor? What does the Bible mean by poor? Well, poor is, think of a dependent, you know, it's tax season, right? So you claim a certain amount of dependents. I have quite a few of them, which kind of works out in my favor. So I, if for no other reason, being fruitful and multiplied, pays some dividends as far as the tax man is concerned, lessening your tax burden, right? So, how, so my children are poor in as much as they are dependent. Another way to say it is, what is the value of each one of my children relative to their independence? Relative to their independence, they are poor. In other words, my children may have clothes in their back, food and, and so forth, and lodging, but they haven't earned that by virtue of what they've done. With, as measured against their ability, they are poor. That is, they are dependent on the provision and the care of their parents. Hence the term dependence. In the same way, we are poor. How much do we own? How much do we comfort, security, and even our daily bread can we chalk up to our independence? You know, look up here saying, so I'm making a gesture, a big zero. A zero. We are dependents upon the Lord, even more so than our children are on us, parents. And as such, we are poor. This is what it means to be poor in spirit, to recognize that reality I just said. And the Lord awakened Job to this. I am poor. Dust, ashes, a sinner condemned, worthy of these boils. You've opened my eyes. You've opened my ears. And once we recognize our sin in light of the sovereign, what happens? Does he leave us in our poverty? No. He restores us. He pours on, on us Riches beyond compare, eternal life, streets paved with gold, a crown as rewards. 
the pleasure above all of these of reconciliation and fellowship with the God who made us and created us in the first place. The consequences of covenant. There's a paradox here too. God is powerful and he is uplifting. He's powerful and he is uplifting. This corrects some errors in our society as well. Neo-Marxism, I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but there's this idea popular in culture that all power must be distributed absolutely equally, otherwise somebody is a victim. False. It's false. The Word of God says as much. God is powerful and he's uplifting. Are you a victim of God because he's powerful? No. God has distributed his power with disparity, if you will. And this is, again, like we said before at the beginning of the message, this is reality in the world that he has created. This might be a paradox for us, but as we understand it in the truth of Scripture and get our mind right, it becomes glorious. What is power according to Scripture? Or you could say leadership. Well, in part it's this. It's to bear the weight of responsibility even at the cost of self-giving. To bear the weight of responsibility even at the cost of self-giving. Our Lord said that we should be a leader like him in laying down our life, serving those whom we are called to lead. This is a good picture of godliness and marriage. Husbands, you lay down your life in providing for your family. Your schedule is ordered in large part by the demands that your family needs for you to be productive. Um, this is a, 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 a minister. How does he know he's not a hireling? If he would do it for free, basically. I was given that wise counsel by a pastor years ago. And so if he would be willing to set his own comforts aside and even take a salary cut in these days in a dark culture, there might be a lot of bivocational you know, pastors going on and so forth. Jesus Christ. Maybe switch to this one, maybe. Check test. of his people. Now one illustration of this is a man whose name is fun to say, Mephibosheth. Hey kids, you know who Mephibosheth was? Yeah. Anybody know? Tell me who he was, Theo. Oh, <laughs> oh have you heard the name though? Thanks bud. Who's heard the name Mephibosheth? So just to refresh your memory, a little Bible school trivia, Sunday school trivia for you today. I had the flannel board up here. I'd put a guy in a wheelchair, well, I guess it's a little anachronistic. Maybe they didn't have wheelchairs then. 
Nevertheless, Mephibosheth was crippled. So he had a few strikes against him. David is king. Mephibosheth was a descendant. He was one of the living relatives of Saul, who was a king who was David's archenemy, archenemy before he took the throne. Mephibosheth was also very dependent, very needy. He was crippled due to an accident. I believe his caretaker dropped him while he's trying to, they were trying to flee from some peril earlier in his life. And so David summons for Mephibosheth. He says, is there any living relative of Saul? Bring him into my courts. They go out and they look and they find this lame man. And this lame man comes before the king, King David, who's now assumed the throne, right? He's standing before the one that has the power to condemn him. He knows he's related to the man that was his arch enemy. He feels worthless. He can't contribute anything to David's army. He couldn't even walk. He's lame. He's a dependent. But what happens? Does David say, you're going to be hanged today? Because your lineage and legacy is colored by my arch enemy, and I refuse to let anybody stay alive that uh, was associated with the former man who set, a, to, set out to kill me. No. David, said, David honors him because he recognizes the Lord's anointing of Saul. And so he says to Mephibosheth, you are welcome, and you will sit at my table for the rest of your days. And almost brings tears to your eyes. What is the picture here? Again, the gospel. Who is the son of David, kids? Who is the son of David? God, more specifically? Shout it out. Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the son of David. And if Jesus is the son of David, who is, who can relate to Mephibosheth? Who has the broken legs of sin? Who has the condemnation of wickedness? Who was once an enemy of the son of David? You and I. You and I were Mephibosheth. You and I, in our sin, did not deserve to sit at the king's table. We were aligned with his archenemies. We were his archenemies, even worse. We could not contribute anything to him. The legs of our capacity, ability, the strength of our, uh, our worth and our merit, our ability to save ourselves or to make ourselves presentable in the king's court, non-existent. But what does the king do? Like King David of old, but in far greater, eternally greater measure, the son of David, our king of kings, stoops low, heals our legs by dying for us, seats us at his table, even as we, you guys celebrate, and we did too at our church, the church we attended in Florida, at the table of the Lord, represented in communion, we are welcome to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the glorious picture of future to come. And we, the one-time lame condemned Mephibosheth, have been healed and elevated, just like Psalm 13 declares, to make us sit with princes with the princes of his people. Is that not awesome? And then the final thing, the final consequence of covenant, expounded in verse 9, he, the Lord, gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Okay, kids, trivia. So who's a barren woman that God gave a son to that we've been talking about on Sundays in our Genesis series? Very good. Thanks for shouting it out. And who is the son of promise? Shout out the name. Isaac. Isaac. Very good. Now, kids, can someone name another barren woman in Scripture who God gave a kid to? Sarah's one. Can someone name another barren woman who God gave a kid to? Hannah. Hannah. Excellent. Hannah, the, her song of worship to the Lord for answering her prayer to give her a son in her barrenness was our worship text today for Samuel 2, 1 through 10. And again, we don't have time to go there, but I encourage you this week, study that text. It dovetails Psalm 113 perfectly. The barren woman, Hannah, cries out, God gives her a child in her barrenness, makes her the joyous mother of children. What does she do? Offers her son as an offering of sorts back to the Lord. 
almost like a picture that we'll study more uh, next week of Abraham and Isaac and a picture of Christ to come and so forth. But this was a picture of something that would happen in the future. God would give more barren women children. Elizabeth, who would bear the prophet who would go before the Lord is barren, and God opened her womb. Mary was a virgin, again, not having the physical capacity to conceive under those circumstances, yet God did a miracle. And this was the most powerful and incredible birth by, by miracle of all. And that is what is pictured in these more shadowy prophecies of old, even Genesis 3.15. One day, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Fruitfulness and hope for salvation are connected in Scripture. Even through childbearing, salvation will come. What is pictured here? Well, the womb is the very means and vehicle that God used through history for multiple things. One, to create more images of God to worship Him. Two, to be obedient to the first commandment, to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the earth. Three, as a vehicle for the incarnation of Jesus Christ to condescend, to stoop low, to take on flesh and to dwell among us. Incidentally, is it any wonder that the devil hates the womb so much? Why abortion is so popular in our land and has retained, it has retained the sort of sacred ritual status, the sacrament of the rebellious? Why? Because the womb uh, represented uh, the fruitfulness of the woman who is submitted to the Lord, even as pictured through history and evident even in our experience in some representative measure, was the vehicle whereby the image of God comes into the earth, where souls are populated for the kingdom of God, where Jesus Christ would enter into our experience, and so on and so forth. So Psalm 113 recognizes the joy of this, the beauty of this, the power of this, by saying, He, the Lord, opens up the barren womb, and makes the woman who one time was sorrowful, lonely, and unable to affect her condition, like Rachel, Sarah, the wife of Manoah, mother of Samson, Hannah, Elizabeth, and so forth, making all of them the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. What are these? These are the consequences of the covenant between God and us. When he looks down, not to judge, but in Christ to save, it is incredible. We are lifted from the ash heap of our sin. We are healed from the lameness of our rebellion. And we are made fruitful unto uh, even gospel spreading across the whole world as a result of his glorious plan of salvation. Thus, through new birth, many new children of Abraham, so to speak, as the scriptures say, are being born as the gospel goes forth and people repent and believe all across the whole world, thus fulfilling words from Psalm 113. He is high above all nations, has glory above the heavens. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. He raises up the poor and the needy from the dust and the ashes. He makes us to sit with princes even at the right hand of Christ himself. That posh, positional language the New Testament expounds. With the princes of his people, he gives the barren woman a home and makes her the joyous mother of children. Thus, by way of the seed of the woman, unto us was born a Savior, Christ the Lord. An ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 113, 9. And one more future study text for you. Luke 1, 46-55. That's what we call the Song of Mary, the Magnificat. It is amazing the parallels between that psalm, that song, and this song. And there is a reason for it because it's a fulfillment of Psalm 113 in the experience of the Virgin, 
who would bear a son, Jesus Christ, born by conception power of the Holy Spirit unto the saving of his people. Let us praise the Lord in prayer as we close this message. Lord, you are worthy of limitless praise. We who are once the lost, the dead, the broken, the lame, the reject, rightly so, have been redeemed, ransomed, lifted up. You, the powerful, glorious one over nations, over the heavens, over all and all that will be, stooped low in the incarnation of Jesus Christ to wash the feet, as it were, of his disciples, and stoop lower still even the cruel death on Calvary to restore us to table fellowship with the holy God. This is incredible. It's beyond our imagination. But Lord, we pray that you would equip and encourage our faith through meditations such as these. Carve out more room in our intellect to understand the meaning of these things, their propositional truth. Carve out more room in our affections to appreciate and to love and to overflow with praise and emotion. Yes, emotions do the a revelation of yourself as we gather together, as we have our own prayer times and carve out more ability in our own proclamation, testimony, and witnessing to make these things clear to the lost. Finally, we pray this morning, as your word has been proclaimed, insofar as it has been rightly divided, would you use it to raise the dead, O Lord? Would you use it to cause sinners who remain in dust and ashes to repent and their ears have their ears open and their eyes open to Jesus Christ, the Messiah born at the fullness of time to die on Calvary for their sins and to raise again from the dead and to rule over all his enemies until they, he makes them his, foot, his footstool. I pray, Lord, that that would happen, that you would raise up more voices around this earth to bring this message from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same because you are worthy of praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.